Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior tomorrow knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the 11th episode in our 12-part series, in which we'll be taking a deep dive into the Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic and before we jump in for the penultimate time only two episodes left now hasten we have gotten a few messages i wanted to address uh, requesting some sort of live q a with us or or some kind of way that people can ask us questions and get direct answers and to that i would say to our listeners if there is interest write in let us know, tweet us or email us at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. Uh, we'd be happy to set something like that up, but it would be difficult logistically to find a time and a date that works for everyone that might be interested. And so if we're not able to put that together, I would encourage everyone to just email their questions directly to us. And maybe we could even do a Q&A episode of the show down the line outside of this deep dive series in which all we do is answer those cues, give them some A's. Would you be up for that, Hasten? some kind of live stream? Absolutely. A live stream sounds like a ton of fun. We can have the movie available in the background to play the clip of what they're talking about, and then we can discuss it. What platform do you think would be ideal for that? Because obviously that takes us outside the realm of uh, the podcast. Maybe YouTube Live? Probably YouTube Live would probably be the easiest. So I don't think we'll be doing anything like that in the immediate future, but it is something for us to keep in mind because it does seem like there's a lot of folks who have some questions about the movie that they have not found the answers to within the tomes that we've already published about it. We'll be happy to dive into the archives and see if we can find some answers for them. What are you doing? Not giving up. The runtime we'll be covering in today's episode begins at 1 hour, 45 minutes and 4 seconds, and goes until 1 hour, 56 minutes and 55 seconds. Our penultimate sequence, which opens with a bang with the Battle of Bridgeway, and takes us straight through the climactic movements of this story. Frank's back, and he's not given up. It's great to see him buy into Casey's plan so fully that he's willing to give a knee to Nick's in the gut. I love this scene because you can just see the, like... Yeah, we can see the decades of Frank's resentment towards Nick's just come out in one massive knee gut, and it's fantastic. That's his commitment to Casey's ideals and giving her the chance to enact her plan. And while Frank's is off handling Nick's, of course, Casey and Athena have to contend with his guards. And I will say poor, poor Jensen, because, of course, he was one of the ones that we met in the deleted hover rail sequence. And according to the script... He's designated as guard number two. We have three guards here, and it's a little bit of a case of the disappearing guard. Because if you follow what's going on here through some stellar choreography, I love the choreography in this fight. It seems so chaotic, but when you really break it down, it's really well designed as a fight. There's a lot of simultaneity going on between the different factions of people, and it just handles them all so well. It's actually working like a fine-tuned machine. So it's a deceptive scene. So Frank's holding Nick's down, frustrated as he yells to Athena, Arm it! Get it onto the platform! And with the pinball in hand, Athena watches the descending platform, and we get a little more in the screenplay here, where Athena understands, underneath her breath to herself, she says, And send the bomb up to the monitor. And Casey hears that and says, We're blowing it up? And Athena says, Apparently... And then Casey says, Athena! And this is when we have this little dance between the guards, Casey and Athena. And I think this is one of the coolest moves in the entire movie and something that really stuck with me. It's described in the screenplay like this. Athena spins, ducking guard number two and deftly flinging him toward guard number three as he turns his rifle on her and fires, vaporizing guard number two into a dust cloud through which Athena leaps, fly kicking the shooter into the water. I mean, what a great description of the exact moment in the film. This It's such an incredible thing because just as soon as your mind has caught up with what she's just done, there she is coming through the cloud. She throws the guy the other guy blasts that guy and through the dust she comes and knocks the guy who shot it's a really incredible moment worthy of of cartoon physics i absolutely adore 
that move. And within that move, we see how two of those guards are done away with. One is completely vaporized and the other falls into the pool. So we don't have to worry about them. But there was that third guard at the beginning, which Casey knees in the mouth. And so perhaps that knocked him out. But when we see wider shots later in the scene, his body is nowhere to be found. Did he disappear or perhaps in defeat attempting not to be crushed by any of the craziness going on perhaps that first guard that just sort of crawled maybe he woke up and crawled into the other pond and just said i'm gonna hide here until it all blows over i gotta say it seems like a weird thing to have these audio animatronics that don't respond well to water and then you have two water features right around the main way in and out of your representative alternate universe this is an interesting question hasten are you saying that you interpret nix's guards to be audio animatronics well yeah because we see them uh we see that we see one of them uh fizzle as he goes into the water i'm like you wouldn't put a rail up there or anything like wouldn't the impeding army from the real world come through the portal this also inspires the question do you think all of nix's guards were audio animatronics if that gentleman was because in that deleted scene boy did i want to believe that Jensen was a human who really just wanted to know what was going on over there. I suppose it's possible Jensen was an audio animatronic. I mean, it would make some level of sense. Nick's surrounding himself with nothing but audio animatronics. But hey, anything's possible. Much like the clone troopers turning into stormtroopers, you could have a mix of conscripted men from the other side, or perhaps even those born in Tomorrowland, because by this point, there must be those native to Tomorrowland who never came over to our world, mixed in with some audio animatronics. Who knows? What do those ranks truly look like? Those are mysteries that perhaps die with David Nix. It is hard to track the particular guards' faces in this scene. Everything's happening so quickly. Uh, and there appeared to be some inconsistent juggling of which guard was where throughout the scene, even in the screenplay. But guard number two, as I said, is described as being Jensen. And if that is the case, guard number two being the one vaporized, we should pour one out now for our dearly departed featured guard from the hover rail deleted scene. Additionally, in the script, Jensen is the one to activate the Goliath robot, but in the film, a little editing trick sees Nix doing it, presumably using a take of him trying to deactivate the monitor platform, which is what he's continually trying to do. These evil Goliaths, they do look similar to the one that helped Frank fix his jetpack at the beginning of the movie, but without all of those cute orange BB-8 uh, decorations that he had. So these are definitely the evil Goliaths. We definitely know they are Goliath robots from their view because it says it right in their little view portal at the very top. So that's not just an out of fiction behind the scenes piece of knowledge. It is embedded within the film itself. Who knew that POV could be so revealing? We lo I love UI or robot view shots. I'm disappointed there's not more Easter eggs in here besides the name. And that, of course, was all designed to show us explosive detected. That Goliath knows exactly what's going on and what they're up to and what they're planning to do, and it's going to try and stop them no matter what. So Athena tosses Casey that pinball, and Casey does a pretty darn impressive jump to hoist herself onto that ascending platform, only to be quickly outdone by Athena's iconic dodge to avoid a stabbing Goliath claw into an arcing leap as she jumps onto his arm. This is just really fun stuff. That's such an exciting moment. And when you look at the behind-the-scenes pictures of Raffi Cassidy in those wire harnesses. I think a lot of this tumbling and gymnastic stuff, she is actually doing herself, which is extremely impressive. I love all of these shots as the fight is going on and we see Casey rising on the platform with the city in the background and the, the gateway just pulls all that power pulsing up. It's so, there's such design in here that I think that a lot of people just didn't notice in their first go around. Well, it is such a fast sequence. I mean, this this fight scene doesn't actually last very long, but there is an incredible amount of stuff packed into just a few moments. And one of the things that didn't make it, this type of action storytelling doesn't require dialogue, but the screenplay did throw a few other little jabs in there, including Nick's saying, you're mad, Frank. And Frank saying, I'm angry, you're mad. 
which is difficult to imagine them doing in the throes of trying to beat each other up. But hey, if any caliber of actor could make it work, it's those two top tier gentlemen. And then I'm sad that we lost this little joke where Frank yells at Casey, Casey as he's as she's rising on the platform. We did get arm it, arm it. And she goes, how? And then in the screenplay, didn't get in the film. He's go. he says, not now. Wait till you get close. And then Casey says, I didn't say now. I said, how? So as Casey is rising up and we get those beautiful views of the city, she witnesses one of those tachyonic future echoes of herself arming the device. And that teaches her how to do it, which is a temporal loop worthy of Doctor Who herself. And in the screenplay, she even thanks her future self for showing her how to do it, only before plummeting through the ground, which, of course, she figures out and realizes is going to mean her platform is moments away from plunging down back into the bridgeway. That is, of course, planting a seed, recalling back to the tachyonic visions that they saw as they were originally going up to the monitor with Nyx, but it's something we need to reestablish here because it's going to become a central part of the finale coming up. And then, of course, Athena assumes control of one of the Goliaths onto which she has leaped and she's made it rock'em sock'em robots. They even say that in the script, it's rock'em sock'em robots. And boy, does she rock and sock one of them halfway through the portal that Nix and Frank are now on the other side of, which Haston brings us to the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. So Haston, this beach sequence, surely they just filmed it on a back lot somewhere and digitally added an island behind them, right? You would think so, right? Like that would be the cheapest option, but it's very clear that the movie staff wanted to go on vacation. And spend as much money as possible on this movie. Because this was actually filmed on Eleuthera Beach in the Bahamas. It's incredible that they actually transported half of a Goliath, full scale, bottom half of a Goliath robot for the moment after he split in half by the closing portal. I mean... That's incredible because most of those shots, the Goliath is moving. And any time the Goliath is moving, it is a digital effect. They certainly built full-scale ones for the sake of Raffi Cassidy leaping on the back of them to do her stunts. But anytime there's any degree of motion, it's a purely digital creation. And so there really are only a few shots in which you can see the physical version that they transported all the way down to the Bahamas just for these shots. And so when we look back through the prism of time, knowing that this film lost quite a bit of money for Disney, one does start to wonder, did Brad Bird and company really need that vacation to the Bahamas for the very few scant shots that we have on the beach here? I'm not personally convinced, but hey, I'm no Brad Bird. Who am I to judge? It's interesting because I remember around the time that this this scene was being filmed, his wife was tweeted out pictures of them in the Bahamas. Liz Bird herself, the Grand Duchess of Tomorrowland. Yes, she tweeted out pictures of the Bahamas. And I remember at that point in time, our discussions were fiendish about the Bahamas and why the film would be there. Well, I'm going to guess that Liz Bird needed to be there because if my ears aren't deceiving me, I think that her voice, which was also the voice of the transport platform at the beginning of the film, may indeed have been the countdown voice of the pinball detonation device. And so she would have to be on set reading the countdown or else how would Hugh Laurie and George Clooney know when the countdown was happening? Some other person on the crew couldn't possibly have read it off. She needed to be there. And then back on the other side of the portal, we get this fantastic moment where Athena sees the plummeting platform on which Casey is falling and then quickly pilots her rock'em sock'em robot underneath and uses it to catch the falling platform in that claw. And this is a moment where Michael Giacchino goes wild. The music is in full form. Just listen. Oh, 
the blood is pumping. The audience is excited. This is an action beat if I've ever seen one. And she saved the day. A robot piloting a robot. What will they think of next? Where's the bomb? And after the platform crushes that Goliath robot, they begin to look for the lost pinball. Clearly, she couldn't have held onto it. It bounced off somewhere off to the side. And in this moment, we see another instance of those tachyonic flashes of future. But this time, it's predicting possible courses of action to be taken by Athena. Now, I have a question here. And this is something that was... So, initially, I thought it was the actual sphere that housed the Walker algorithm and these tachyonic flashes of future. Now, I'm not an expert in tachyonic fusion myself, but would breaking the platform and causing these tachyonic beams to escape, were those beams, was that built into the platform itself? How connected was the platform to the actual device? Because now it seems like whatever tachyon beams were surrounded by you know them when they were looking at the future have now escaped because we're seeing them all over this scene with the various athenas running around and the the different gunshots my answer to that question i think would be because we saw those flashes of future with the tachyonic energy earlier in the film when they first got there and everything was still business as usual for Nyx. And they're going up on that platform and says, oh, too late when her hat flies off. I would say that there's some kind of relationship between the sphere and the Trilon, you know, the grand spires of that. Clearly you can see in the design, there's this energy pulsating between them. And so it is in the relationship between the two. And I think the closer you get to either of them, you're probably going to start to see some of those aberrations occur, some of those predictions. I don't know that it's necessarily the result of any kind of change of state at this moment, but it could be possible that because of all this interference, it's getting more intense. You know, the small visions that Casey sees up on the platform when she's turning on the bomb are perhaps less intense than what we're seeing now, which is, you know, several solid Athenas running in different directions. And uh, this is an idea that's beginning to emerge that brings us into the final concepts explored in this movie. The monitor is a probability machine. It's a more advanced version of the one that was supposed to be shown off at the IBM pavilion in the deleted World's Fair sequence at the beginning of the film. And showing these variably possible futures in tandem, we can see that the actions of our heroes have already had some level of an effect. That is to say, that 100% probability is already starting to falter. If it can't precisely predict which one of the possible courses Athena, who herself is a programmatic being, is going to take. One Athena runs toward a rifle, the other tends to Casey, while our very real Athena heads to the bridgeway controls to close the portal and slice that Goliath in half. The cutaway to Frank and Nix's reaction on the other side is hilarious. They stop fighting. Frank tosses some sand and makes kind of a disappointed sound. I just love this idea that they're in the heat of a conflict. But the minute that portal closes, it's like, what are we fighting about? We're about to be stranded here forever. Are we going to be marooned until the end of days on this island? On the other side, of course, Casey locates the pinball explosive and asks Athena, What do I do? How do I turn it off? 30 seconds. You can't. And that is indeed what ended up being the rules of the monitor itself, which is it can't be turned off, as we discussed in the last episode, not the original idea. But in the final version of the movie here, we do have a little bit of a parallel, which is beware what technology you turn on because you might never be able to turn it off. (laughs) This is not funny. We cut back to Frank and Nix. Frank is laughing his butt off. Of course, Nix is not having it. This is not funny. And in the screenplay, Frank tries to respond. He's laughing so hard he can barely get it out. He says, no, this this is the very definition of funny. And then filled with outrage and confusion, Nix looks around for someone other than the laughing boy to be mad at. And of course, he finds no one. They're completely alone. It's it's uncharted, as he said earlier in the movie. Now the portal does reopen when Athena and Casey realize that they need to ditch the pinball that's begun its final countdown. We can hear it counting down to its big detonation. And of course, Frank and Nix then 
start to tussle again once the portal has been reopened. Uh, so they're not going to be marooned here to the end of days. They better get on with their conflict. I love the punch that Nix takes right as he sees the portal reopen. Oh, man, it's a dynamic comic book sort of punch, isn't it? Right before we see the little pinball vaulted through the portal landing on the beach before them and they go oh they know exactly what's about to happen so they book it they run past the half of the goliath and i love that here even just off screen we have casey completing her journey from casey the destructor as we kept saying at the beginning of the movie to casey the disarmer as she's trying to toss this pinball explosive through the portal onto the beach to hopefully contain the blast someone who was once causing all the blasts is now trying to contain the blast so even though I understand and I hear people when they say they feel like Casey was sidelined in this finale, I think if you look in the margins here, her revelation in the last sequence, that really was her contribution to the story. And even here in the action moments, there is, I think, evidence of her arc as a character. So it might not be as to the forefront as some would have hoped, but I do think it lives on here in the finished version of the movie. And that blast that she tries to contain is mostly contained, but it releases enough force before it's cut off to knock over one of the two bridgeway spires. And Nyx tries to scramble out of the path, but he doesn't get clear before it lands, pinning his leg beneath it. Hugh Laurie's acting here of the gateway, one of the gateway thing falling down onto his leg is just fantastic with the absolute yell. From a thematic perspective, I love this, right? Nyx has been untouchable since the start of the film. He drinks his rejuvenator, and he feels like he is limitless in his life. And so, and then he has one of his giant pieces of technology that he is using to sort of control the masses fall on him and pin him and make him unable to do anything. There was some comparison to the other Lindelofian science fiction effort, Prometheus, which is the logistical question, of course, why didn't he just roll in the other direction? That is to say, in the heat of the moment, one doesn't know which direction it's going to fall. He was just blindly scrambling to get out of the way. And I don't think it's necessarily reflective of that similar moment that got quite a lot of criticism from Prometheus, where the character is running straight in the path of a rolling circular spaceship and declines to roll out of the way perpendicular to it. But in that moment, who's to say that the ship wouldn't have just shifted and, and crashed on you the other way. There really is no way to know. I don't think nitpicking the logistics of a moment in which characters are in panic is ever really going to yield any kind of storytelling juice to you as an audience. So I see this moment as what you said, Haston. It is this thematic expression of Nick's reaping what he has sown. And a man who has denied death for so very long, even to the level of extending his own life seemingly indefinitely, now finds himself brushing with imminent doom. So he's pinned down. He starts to grab for a rifle that's just out of his reach. And we cut to Athena. And all the sound goes out of the movie. And it's quiet. And she's reawakening. She's been knocked out by the blast. And we can hear her animatronic eyes readjusting to the light in the room with the mechanical buzz. The soundtrack is telling us this is a big moment. We need to pay attention. Things are about to happen. Giant movements of character are imminent. And we see the next moments through her eyes. We haven't really had the opportunity to do that. We've been with Casey. We've been with Frank. And in this moment, we are finally with Athena. We see what she sees. And she sees Frank tending to the fallen Casey, helping her up. Just as off screen, Nix screams his name, Walker in the script and Frank in the movie, just before a blaster shot nails him in the chest, blowing him back. And his body kind of slumps back in an interestingly similar fashion to when Casey is blown off the doorstep by Frank when she first approaches his house. Now, Athena is shocked as Frank's body slumps over dead. The moment lingers painfully before the body blows away in a tachyonic dust like all of the monitor's other predictive visions. This hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. The monitor is certain. It doesn't show three or four possible versions of it. Frank is about to die, just as it has been shown. And as the result of the same makers as the monitor itself, in this moment, Athena should accept that vision of the future. After all, its fate is as determined as her own. 
both slaves to their own programming. As Frank warned Casey earlier in the movie, just a series of ones and zeros and nothing more. But this is Athena's moment of awakening. This is the moment the film stakes its claim in the eternal philosophical battle between free will and fate, enacted through the drama of this movie by a character who is herself a purely deterministic being, a mechanical, programmed recruiter, nothing more than the sum of her literal parts. Or is she? Athena defies the deterministic certitude of the monitor's prediction in this moment by choosing to act, not just to act, but to engage with perhaps one of the most human choices one can make when they harness the full potential of their free will. In this moment, Athena chooses to sacrifice herself to save the life of another. In doing so, she breaks that deterministic chain and transcends her programming to become so much more than anyone who programmed her could have ever imagined. More than any machine could have predicted, the ultimate act of love for someone who regretted being fooled into loving something that couldn't love him back. Everything in the movie lives in this one moment. This sort of scene was highly criticized when the film came out. I think that what was criticized about it was just this sort of default acceptance of free will, this idea that, oh, yeah, she saw the outcome, that wasn't real, she did something, and that didn't cause the outcome. And in that moment, you know, here we have this clear, defined moment that speaks against what the entire rest of the film is saying. When I think people saw this in theaters, they went, yeah, that's exactly what should happen because we do have this sort of default idea in our brains that we do have this free will to change things. And so people didn't need to be convinced of that. And it wasn't until the second or third watching of the film that at least for me, that it really clicked like, Oh yeah. in her, in her literal leap of love for Frank, this, algorithm that he built that was all telling that was the world was going to end in 60 days and you could do nothing about it and the probability would up and up and up and there was nothing we could do about it she changed it and that's a huge huge thing and when we cut back to nicks on the ground i appreciate you know hugh laurie's acting so much better because he is just in this utter state of shock as if he was already overconfident after he saw the vision of him shooting Frank, that he was going to get him again. And he didn't. And we see that exact same kind of amazement that we saw on the platform when he saw the flicker. Totally. And I think that that is the ultimate place that we leave Nix, which is someone who had a full belief in what he made. And that belief has now been shaken by this one act. Every The whole house of cards has fallen for him. And you're absolutely right. That makes perfect sense. And I think what you're saying about the audience's default expectation of free will, because, you know, we as humans want to believe in free will, it's a perfectly natural assumption to make. Uh, it, it tracks perfectly because it occurs now that we're talking about it, how much of this film's core stakes do rely on subtext because that nature of the monitor, the monitor as presented in the film, it really only works if free will doesn't exist. If free will is merely an illusion that is represented through our perception of a deterministic truth, that's the only way the monitor can work as described. And none of that is really called out specifically in dialogue. They dance around it. And they're certainly playing with the theme quite explicitly. It's not merely in the realm of interpretation. The movie is talking about it, but it's not talking about it literally. It's talking about it metaphorically. And so I think you're right. The depth of that expectation perhaps was not set for many viewers of the film because there is that default expectation of free will when really everything else in the movie leading up to this point really is asking that question. How can this monitor work if free will exists? And the answer is it really can't. But at the end of the day, Nix was wrong. And even if free will ultimately in the cosmic sense does not exist and determinism does reign supreme, his creation was folly. And I think to me that speaks to there will always be the unobservable. You know, perhaps if the monitor was just a little bit better, it was able to just observe a little bit more, maybe get into those tachyons on an even deeper level. It would have modeled a perfect prediction if we get ever more close to it. But in truth, there will always be the unreachable. And we will always make metaphors for the unreachable. And that to me 
is the core of storytelling. We are mythologizing that which is unobservable, that which is always out of our ability to see, but that which is felt. And so when people talk about issues of the spirit, spirituality, all they're talking about is that which can't be observed. Movies like this are approaching that idea through a science fiction type of lens, which is to say, what if we ask that question through this fictional device? We've put the monitor at the core of this movie, just as it has been put at the core of the infrastructural needs of Tomorrowland, right? It is servicing everything. As we discussed, it is now the power source. It is everything. It is the alpha and the omega. And so when we come to a moment like this, where the monitor is ultimately deemed incorrect and at the hands of another machine, I think you realize just how nuanced and complex the themes of this movie being expressed are. Because it would be one thing to have Casey come up here and express this humanity. Oh, Machines are deterministically controlled, but I, a human, flesh and blood, we have the spirit of free will within us. That's not what the movie's saying. It is another creation. There is a nuance to that idea because it would be so easy to have one of the human characters do it. But to have Athena in this moment go beyond the sum of her parts, to go beyond just what she was made to do. Because, you know, we are machines. We're just flesh machines. We all have this base programming that we think we can't get out of. And so Athena's act is a metaphor for a type of action that anyone can take and erasing those boundaries between us and really recontextualizing the relationship between Frank and Athena, which we will see the ramifications of in upcoming scenes. It speaks to, you know, if you remember the end of Nix's speech, he talks about People don't want to change the future because it doesn't require anything of them today. You have this dueling concept of this deterministic fate is what happens in the moment, right? You're you're driving down the road. You see another vehicle who's about to get in an accident. You're really close. Maybe you have the ability to sideswipe or, or, or punch it off or whatever. It's like, do you do that or not? It's this in the moment, very fight or flight kind of mechanism. And I, I think that this concept that this film pulls apart is that we are so, as a species and as the way we operate, it's so difficult for us to want to mold the future into something positive because the little interactions that we do are just negating these, these small negative things. And I just love this idea of her sacrificing herself for Frank is sort of what kicks off preventing the apocalypse. No question. It enables it to happen just as every action since our heroes have come together has furthered that goal. And I think that's what's so beautiful about this moment is if Athena as a character was what was expected of her as this robotic recruiter that had this goal and sometimes uh, to a fault followed that programming. Now we see without Casey in particular, and Casey's relationship with Frank, and Athena being able to observe that. I think Athena before Casey would have looked at the prediction of the monitor and accepted it and done nothing. But I do think there's an aspect of the flicker that is contagious. And by Athena seeing the possibilities presented by the other two heroes coming together, she then takes the leap of applying it to herself. And knowing that the experiences that she's gone through have not just been limited to what has been expected of her and what the structure would demand of her, but she can be something more in her relationship with others. And that is the type of story we need to keep telling over and over again, because we do need to break those cycles. There are systems in this world that are more nefarious than any monitor in this movie. There are systems in this world that are so vast and so unimaginably powerful that we can't even fathom how to shut them down. We don't even know how to take the first step. And so to have that emphasis of it's about those human connections, it's about those relationships, we need to emphasize the connection between people and anything that tries to tell you that you're separate or that there is this line that you can divide between them and you, you and others, we've got to do everything we can to erase those things. And that's what Athena is doing in this moment. She's erasing divisions between man and machine, between free will and fate. She is humanity embodied, the ghost within the machine, as it were, which was originally the god within the machine. There's a point here that I'd like to make about, you know, systems and the political justice that we've seen over the last year. As we see again and again, the sort of young optimist, the young optimists of our society 
understand that things can be changed. And I think a generation has this sort of dig in root of no, no, it can't. This is the way we've always done this. This is the way we've always done policing. This is the way we've always done politics. This is the way we've always done. And we're discovering that a lot of these systems are absolutely rotten to the core. And it's amazing to me that we have a generation of optimists who are saying, why can't we burn this down? Why can't we fix it? And I think that that is truly a central focus of this movie going into the finale that we will be discussing next episode in terms of, okay, you've done it, now what? And this question of how do you take inspiration from the past? You know, you can criticize Plus Ultra. You can see the rot that became of them through the transition into Nyx from the founders down on the line. But how do you not totally refute, because clearly they had a vision that brought everyone together, but learn from the mistakes of the past while transcending, and in the context of this particular moment of this movie, a blank slate. We can rebuild now. It would be folly of us to rebuild with no regard for the past. You know, I think there's been a lot of storytelling in recent times about the dangers of nostalgia, and this movie is one of them. Nostalgia can be dangerous, but it can also be inspiring. And that's one of the things this movie is talking about. And we'll get a little more deeply into that next time. But this idea of we can rebuild, let's take the good from the past and throw away the bad. You know, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater because it's foolish. You don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. That way lies madness. You see this all the time. People doing things that you think, man, you could really be more efficient if you were willing to accept the teachings and knowledge of others and you can get further along. We're passing the baton throughout humanity. That's how we've achieved all the great things that we have. But here, going from these unimaginably huge human ideas that are happening in what seem to be simple action storytelling beats, but really reveal a whole world of interpretive possibilities, I would like to bring it down to discuss perhaps a little bit more superficial concept, but one that I remember emerging in the fan community reacting to this film right when it came out. Uh, this was not a fan theory of mine, but it was a fan theory that I discovered. And I thought, because we're talking about this section of the movie in which it happens, maybe we should give it a little air here. There was a theory that was summed up basically by the question, is Frank himself an audio animatronic? Forget Nix. You can absolutely see all the reasonings why Nix would be an audio animatronic, but is Frank one as well? And the reasoning behind this very interesting fan theory was observed in all of the different laser blasts and how they affect different characters. So when you see the Pierre Clarks in France blasting through the human curators of the Eiffel Tower, they turn into dust. You know, you see this time and again when Dave Clark uh, fires all those poor sheriffs at the blast from the past, they turn into dust. But then when we see Athena sacrifice herself here, oh, the blast simply leaves a hole in the chest. She's blown backwards. And in the vision, predicting Frank's death that ends up not happening because of that blast, Frank is blown back and not disintegrated. Now, Hasten, you've introduced an interesting wrinkle earlier in this episode to this fan theory, of which I can take no credit. One of Nyx's guards disintegrates when blasted by the other guard, but then kicked through that dust by Athena into the water, clearly an audio animatronic fizzles in that water, unless we're to assume that the waters around the gateway have some sort of tachyonic energy and anyone that falls into it would sizzle. But I enjoy your theory better that that shows that there is some level of audio animatronic guards going on. I do wonder, are these types of blasts and reactions simply the different settings, basically the Star Trek stun versus kill on the phaser, or is it more revealing of some vast conspiracy in which Frank Walker is himself an audio animatronic? It's like, is Deckard a replicant in Blade Runner? And my answer here is unfortunately the same as my answer for Blade Runner is the drama is a lot more interesting if he's a human. As fun as those paths are to explore in our minds, I'm saying no. There's just a couple of different settings on those blasters. Frank Walker is as human as they come. It's possible that Nix didn't want to kill him. yes. He just wanted to incapacitate him. Right. Get as many people knocked out so that he can call his guards or however many people or whatever is left in Tomorrowland to help come save him with everyone knocked out. There must be some deleted shot of Hugh Laurie punching in a, a special stun code on the side of his rifle. 
Maybe it's got two buttons and you just don't see it. By the way, prop-wise, I really do enjoy the design of these particular weapons used by Nixus Guards, which are completely different designs from those used by the Dave Clarks in the real world. They have this pulsing, almost quasi-tachyonic-looking energy that we see in the monitor, but kind of glowing along the sides of the weapons. All of these props were made by a fantastic prop house here in Los Angeles called Studio Art and Technology. They're the elitist of the elite. You'll see them do things for Marvel films and many other Disney. Disney films, and they just really knocked it out of the park on Tomorrowland. The sort of silver finish that they got on these was a really not quite chrome, not quite brushed metal, just this really futuristic sort of liquid metal type finish that they got on all the props. And they're really amazing to see in person. So Casey kicks away Nix's rifle, disarming him. He's not going to be able to get out from under that slab. And this is when Frank cradles Athena off to safety. He he thinks he's taking her to a repair module, but Athena knows better. She hasn't got much time. And there's something she needs to say to Frank before she goes. I love that he takes her to this corner of the plaza that is appropriately adorned with uh, greenery, it's, which is a rarity in Nix's Tomorrowland. And this structure behind them is lit with these natural ripples of light through water. The final moments of this machine's life are framed with images of nature, which I think speaks back to all of the themes we were discussing in Athena's final act. So what better location for her last moments than this? Just beautiful art design in this moment. Oh, Don. I'm shutting down. I'm shutting down. She warns Frank that she's shutting down, her systems are failing, and she's about to lose sync. And she stresses, if I lose sync, it's not failure. And she really hits the word failure, invoking the necessity of that concept that the movie has been wrestling with throughout. And in the screenplay, she continues. What does she say, Haston? She says, mimicking speech movements has no function beyond making human interaction comfortable. It's a fun little piece of techno babble, and to me it harkens back to uh, other robotic characters that we've experienced through time. I feel like Data has expressed similar sentiments. And in another example from one of Lindelof's other science fiction endeavors, back to Prometheus again, that was a sentiment that was expressed very popularly by the character of David, played so brilliantly by Michael Fassbender. And perhaps it was indeed the expression of that sentiment which made them realize, oh, we don't need to put it in this movie. It was done so well over there. I'm a machine. I never thought that was bad. Until I see your face when you found out I was. Now, this is when Athena's automated goodbye for Frank kicks in. Something that she's no doubt planned over the course of her exile. But she needs to tell him something else. Something inspired by their reunion that she didn't know he needed to hear until now. And in this moment, we get Athena's side of the broken relationship we've only seen through Frank's eyes up to this point. To him, he was fooled by her and felt betrayed. But for her, she didn't think... She needed to tell him she was a machine because to her, that wasn't a bad thing. At least she didn't think it was until she saw his reaction when she told him. It's a heartbreaking concept. She can't help the image she was made in any more than we can. And in that way, young Frank betrayed her as well. Now Frank tries to save face by saying that he always knew, but Athena calls him on it. No, you didn't. The acting in this scene is incredible. Just the interplay between Clooney and Rafi Cassidy. You feel that they've known each other for all this time. The, the weight of their relationship is so present in this scene in particular. This is, again, another thing that I think that the general audience or that the reviewing audience was extremely dismissive of. This was a very highly complex concept of a young robot loving a kid who then grew up, but she didn't. And it was so frustrating to see this portrayed as just sort of this, oh, there's this weird, icky George Clooney loves a girl scene at the end of the film that made people like physically uncomfortable. And I'm like, that's that's kind of the intention of it. Oh, it's a difficult concept to wrestle with. But in my mind, the literary equivalent of this is that Athena is a ghost. She's a ghost of his past. There is no present day relationship between them. It is all in the past tense. And in that way, Athena thoroughly represents Frank's relationship 
with his own past. So there is no ugliness you can interpret when you think about it in those terms, which I think are the terms that the movie is presenting it in. Even in this moment, we know she's about to die, but there are truths that need to be corrected in this moment. And she is using her last seconds in order to do that. Something she's been planning for, but the implications of which are so much larger. And so she needs to come out with it right here. Systems failing, activating last thoughts, save for Frank Walker. This is when an automated voice chimes in to deliver her final message. In the screenplay, it was accompanied with a bit of ultimately unnecessary logistical context. Systems failing, activating last thoughts saved for Frank Walker. Uncommunicated thoughts ranked in order of importance and relevance. That's something that we don't really need, but it does seem to reflect in how they've reorganized her thoughts here. In the movie, she says, but I'm concerned that he may be adversely affected when he finds out that I am not human. Whereas in the screenplay, she says, but Governor Nix feels it would invalidate the experiment. Now, this is a change I actually really like because it frames their dilemma as a personal one and not as a structural one puppeteered by Nix in some way, which doesn't really give us anything other than more questions. I think her personal concern is more appropriate to her journey. It's also interesting from a lore perspective because this definitely establishes that Governor Nix was the governor in 1965 that he was not on some sort of board, Tomorrowland board or whatever else, that he was the leader at this point in time. Excellent point. Now, some of those log numbers were juggled a little bit in the editing when they kind of moved some of the sentences around just to make the structure a little more clear. And an interesting result of that is if you read it laid out, it's log colon 15 September 1965. That 15 was not log 15, meaning her 15th log. It was the date. She was saying the date as 15 September 1965. So those log numbers, which are now divorced from the fact that they are dates, go in numerical order. So the log numbers continue to go up to kind of give some semblance of how many logs that she had based on those later dates. But originally, they were intended to be days. But yes, it is delicious to know that indeed he had achieved the rank of governor by only 15 September 1965, while the fair was still going on, not a year after we saw him interact with young Frank. So very fascinating indeed. I'm having unusual thoughts towards Frank Walker. I suspect a flaw in my empathy interface. I'm thinking I should report it. But I haven't. I cannot explain why. When she says, he is my top recruit, and it's so sweet, and the music just so beautifully underlines it. In the screenplay, the scene description says, Frank's eyes meet Athena's, and her eyes say, you still are. Oh, Damon, you're trying to kill me over here. He has potential. I don't want to damage it. He needs someone to believe in him, and I am fulfilling that need. He's my top recruit. We return to some of those flashback visions that we saw in Athena's reminisce in the truck earlier in the movie. And we see the full context of them now when her memories say, I'm having unusual thoughts towards Frank Walker. I suspect a flaw in my empathy interface. I love that. I love this idea of a machine thinking that love, as we might describe it, is best described as a flaw in her empathy interface. And when Frank hears that, the scene description says, Frank flinches. He looks at Athena, understanding that these are the most emotional thoughts her circuitry is capable of having, and she had them for him. The implications of that are obviously huge for these characters and recontextualizing their conflicts throughout the story. So during this reveal, we get this fantastic flashback sequence with Frank and Athena as children. A lot of neat little bits in here. We get a couple more shots of that Chevy prototype car, now retconned and created in the 1960s instead of the early 2010s, as it is in the real world. The new 2010 version was clearly inspired by the 60s version. I love these Tomorrowland sort of formal uniforms that everyone is wearing. It's very theme park with the white and the gray stripe on the legs. Unintentionally, Haston, you've brought us into the Museum Minute. History, art, salvaging it. Rather, it was lost forever. So there are a few background Tomorrowland jumpsuits from this part of the movie that we have as part of the Tomorrowland Times collection, particularly the gray mechanics uniforms that were somewhat spotted in the 1964 scene at the beginning, but mostly get their hero shots here uh, in this part where Frank and Athena are having their young Tomorrowland shenanigans. 
Absolutely. I think it's too bad we didn't get these other these other outfits because these are a personal favorite with the uh I just love the one that they're both wearing. Oh yes. With the gray stripes and that sort of lined pattern. And the little Adam symbol embroidered on the chest. The little embroidered Adam symbol is just just fan- just fantastic. They're sort of pajama, but sort of tracksuit, but also very futuristic. I really do also love the design on those. And I think that at some point we should, at the very least, try to replicate some form of that jacket. Because it is in the cut in the sort of modern day bomber jacket style, which are very in right now. So I think that might be a good product for the future. It really is just such a great heartfelt thing. I, I love these flashback scenes underneath. And I love the sort of the callback to the old Tomorrowland wall sort of in this state of the new broken Tomorrowland. And visually, the, the effects in this sequence are so fantastic, as of course they are in the rest of the movie. But you do get a lot of behind the scenes shots of them filming these flashbacks. Strangely enough, on the Disney Channel movie surfer interstitials that they filmed on the set of the movie behind the scenes when they were at the City of Arts and Sciences in these particular costumes we were complimenting. But you can see in some of these shots, particularly when young Frank is showing a Athena, how to use the jetpack. And I just love that image of Athena in the jetpack. I feel like that could spawn a hundred different adventures as well. Athena with a jetpack. My goodness, she's already so lethal without a jetpack. But in that shot, you've got all the girders of the actual city of arts and sciences in the foreground that have just been seamlessly connected with the extended city beyond it. There has probably never been a more believable city of the future. And it's rendered so casually that your eye doesn't even catch it as a visual effect, and they go by so quickly. But when you really take a chance to freeze frame these moments, there's some incredible work being done here. It's also great because in one of these moments, particularly these hero shots, when Athena is recalling Frank and he's talking to her and he's kind of gesturing with some part in his hand, that is the fuel cell that he installs into the jetpack in the scene with Nyx. And so presumably he's explaining how the jetpack works to her right then. We get the flashback of Athena looking down, sad, as we see the two guards escorting young Frank Walker. Our only glimpse of Frank in 84 from behind, far in the distance. It's interesting here because you, I, I love the groundwork of you don't see anybody else in these shots besides the two guards and the two of them as if the mass exodus had already begun. Things are quiet, you know, just a lot of great connecting to the existing lore here. It's a period of time that I think all Tomorrowland fans would relish getting more storytelling in the exact timeline of how all of those banishments occurred and the debates that spawned them, of course. And speaking of lore, there's some very potent lore in the last bit of her pre-recorded message. Look, 78, April, 1984. Frank Walker has been banished by Governor Nix. He says he has lost hope and he holds me responsible for having given it to him in the first place. I do not understand this. He says I never will, because I do not feel anger or disappointment or love. Giacchino's in full form at this moment, by the way. And this is where Athena has revealed Frank's angry parting words to her all those years ago in this moment when we as the audience know how deeply he was wrong to have said them. End recording. I was designed to find dreamers. I found you. And lost you. Till I found her. Casey. After her recording, Athena's final words are succinct and to the point in the film, but offered a bit more extrapolation in the screenplay. I am connected to emotions, Frank. I am an expression of them. I do have worth. I don't know what separates feeling from programming, but don't discount what my programming represents. I was designed to find dreamers. I found you and lost you. Until I found her, Casey. She's like you. You see that, don't you? Now Athena turns to Casey, addressing her directly. You ask me what makes you special. You're special because you can't be dissuaded from believing in a better world. There's part of me that wishes some of these lines would have been left in. I think it would have destroyed some of this whole objectivism comments that came out of the 
you know, this sort of this sort of constant Bradbird criticism, a baseless criticism. Certainly he's refuted it himself many times. And I think it does speak to now that you mention it, how much he simply doesn't concern himself with those criticisms when he's making a movie. Because you're right, if he had chosen to leave this in, he could probably defer some of it. But I think he is so committed to cutting these scenes in a way that has a natural flow that he realizes when he doesn't need a moment, even if it will save him some grief later, it's still going to go because the movie comes first for him. And so that's something I'll always admire about him is he doesn't sink to the level of his criticism, even if it is something that persists to this day. We have a lot of saved searches out on the internet about this movie. And to this day, people still post about is Tomorrowland objectivist. I do hope with the episodes we've done up to this point, and particularly the one that will come next, we'll be able to do some level of refutation of that idea because that is simply not the values of Brad Bird and it's definitely not the values of this movie. Dreamers need to stick together. It's not programming. It's personal. And of course we return to the scene as it is in the film when she reveals to them what must be done next, which is of course to use her self-destruct to destroy the monitor. The robot who doesn't have ideas gives them the last one they need to save the day. She warns her systems are failing and Frank turns triumphantly to the jetpack stand behind them. I also just love the design of that jetpack, the 2014 version of the jetpack. They had it on display in the lobby of the Disney archives a few years back, and I got to see it in person. An unbelievably beautiful design with that same metallic sheen we were talking about offset against these carbon fiber flaps that sort of mirror the World War II shovels, the trench shovels that Frank used to kind of direct the blast of the jetpack in a very rocketeer kind of way. This version has a protective sort of carbon fiber plating and it's just a beautiful design and it seems very comfortable and it's in a T shape T for Tomorrowland and the pin being some sort of representative jetpack in Brad Bird's mind. It all comes together. The boy who invented his own jetpack and brought it to the land of tomorrow is now using the result of his invention to commit his final act of letting go of a past that he's let define his life for too long. In the screenplay, as Nix watches them fly up to the monitor, he realizes what's about to happen and screams, No! Hovering above the monitor, Athena and Frank share their final moment. An earlier version of this exchange was revealed in the film's junior novel. Want to know a secret? He said. Sure, Athena said weakly. I'm afraid of heights, he said. And at that, Athena did something she had never done before. She laughed. In this version, Frank is the one to make Athena laugh. While in the film, his childhood dedication is more jointly achieved, if we're interpreting it generously, as she makes the joke, why have I never laughed? Because you're not funny. And then his laugh is what makes her laugh. So in a way, they do share that moment. And the screenplay describes his reaction here. She laughs, a genuine chuckle, finally. Frank smiles, all he ever wanted, just not like this. And then, of course, in a line that's carrying a great deal of weight for anyone who's been tuned in to the thematic explorations of the movie up to this point, Athena says, you can let me go now, Frank. And of course, he's not just letting go of Athena in this moment. He's letting go of his past and all that that entails and all of the implications and the weight that has come with it throughout his stance in the movie that has evolved from the young boy, the optimist, into the jaded outcast exile who has surrounded himself in this prison of his own invention, this, this fortress of solitude, now back to reconnect with that youthful optimism that he never would have been able to regain if not for his connection with Casey that was, of course, enabled by Athena. So there is so much tied into this moment when he lets go of her finally, letting go of his past, and she plummets into this machine built so regrettably of his own invention and wipes it all away in a cleansing act of necessary destruction, mirroring the 
somewhat misguided attempts of Casey earlier in the movie. So we see here how they have dovetailed into each other, how he has offered Casey what she needed, and Casey has offered him what he needed. So beautiful. Goodbye, Athena. The exploding monitor begins to fall towards Nyx, and what began as hundreds of balls falling in a random pattern to demonstrate the power of prediction at the World's Fair is now one giant falling ball, demonstrating the destructive consequences wrought by that very prediction. Oh, bollocks. I love that in that subtle parks nod, the actual sphere of the monitor has that same spaceship Earth kind of triangle design but in glass that's an excellent observation because you're usually so distracted by the sweeping lines that go around it but from the top you definitely can see a little bit of spaceship earth in there oh how wonderful another compliment to the visual effects on this film that particular overhead shot where frank drops athena into the monitor it's 100 computer generated frank is cg Athena's CG, they're both digital doubles, and of course the environment is completely computer-generated. And it cuts so well with all the shots around it. Just amazing. And that's the one in which you can very clearly see that Spaceship Earth pattern. Oh, wow, it is exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. And then these radiating tachyonic waves go throughout the city, and slowly you see everything, all the lights in Tomorrowland, switch off. Tomorrowland, as we have been warned, is now dead without the power of the monitor, which in a very Monsters, Inc. kind of way was feeding itself on the negativity of the Earth. Half Monsters, Inc., half Ghostbusters 2, really. Some great shots here of the city going dark, which were so great that they were very cleverly used in reverse in some of the trailers for the film, where they seemingly depicted the city being turned on instead of being turned off. I just, I love that you get this moment to breathe between Frank and Casey once it's all over. He dumps the jetpack. They're sitting there underneath these beautiful bioluminescent trees. Frank falls and he fully returns to form with a direct visual quote from his introduction. A side-scrolling jetpack crash into a cornfield as a boy and an exactly framed counterpart as his adult self touches down in a Tomorrowland pond. The circle is now complete. He sits with Casey under that glowing bioluminescent tree, and they look over the consequence of their actions. A dead Tomorrowland. And it's interesting here, because as with the inversion of the Two Wolves monologue, the exchange between Frank and Casey here was inverted in the screenplay, where Casey said, how do we know if it worked? And Frank says, we don't. Guess we have to make it work. Which Casey ends up offering to him in the final film, which is a more direct responsibility for her character actions. It's such a lovely moment, like you said, the design of those trees obviously being bioluminescent, not requiring any power from the monitor as everything else in the city clearly does, no reflecting the sort of natural stance of our heroes against all that unintegrated technology. We've seen that Nix is just not as interested in those trees, which he, in the deleted scene, decries as beautiful to look at, but don't really give us the power that we need. All the swirling visions of the plants integrated with the trees in Casey's pinvitation scene really didn't have much of a place in Nix's Tomorrowland. But here we have this little respite, like you said, of Frank and Casey having a quiet moment under a tree. And when I think of the landscaping of Tomorrowland, I always go to this moment. There's something so serene about it. And they're looking out over this pond, which is a real pond in the city of arts and sciences. And these wonderful digital trees above them that they built these big lamps to light above it. If you see the before and after of this effects, there's these large lamps that they put above them. And then they replaced it digitally with these fantastic glowing leaves that seem to be lit from within. Another interesting little wrinkle here in this scene. Haston, did you know that there was more than one version of Tomorrowland the movie in circulation? No, I did not. I'm not talking about any fan edits here. We're talking about the music cue that plays underneath Frank and Casey talking here. You know, as he slumps down his jetpack and kind of leans up against the tree, there are two distinctly different music cues here. In the theatrical version, uh, every single format of the theatrical exhibition, IMAX Dolby Everything, also appearing on the Blu-ray disc, 
we hear this. But in the streaming version of the film, which is also oddly on the DVD disc included in the multi-pack, you hear this. very different tones, sort of expressing a different emotion for the scene. I'm going to guess that this was something that in the re-recordings, they assessed as being the emotion they would rather have going into the big finale for the movie, because this is where the montage really kicks into high gear. And I don't know if the note didn't quite make it to every export of the movie, and they wanted the version that is streaming to be all the versions, but somehow the theatrical and the Blu-ray do not match up with the DVD and the streaming version. You think it'll work? I guess we have to make it work. And then there's this really sweet moment when they say, I guess we have to make it work. And we see a gathering of the last remaining residents of Tomorrowland. It's this really dark, unique moment. And we see these silhouettes lining up on the other side of the pond. I've always wondered, Haston, who do you think those people are? They're looking for a leader. That is the feeling of the moment, isn't it? Yeah. It's, all right, you're the new king now. It's the subjects of the old king. Caesar has been stabbed, and they're all looking around and saying, all right, what's next? And that's the same things our characters are asking. And then we hear a prelap of the voiceover from the next sequence appearing over this image of Frank saying, so we're making it work. A voice from the future reaching back into the present. And as our heroes have committed to making it work, we have reached the end of this episode. Endless possibilities await them as they begin their journey of rebuilding Tomorrowland. What will this future look like? How will it define itself against the origins of Plus Ultra? What values will it demonstrate? And how will they be shaped by the lessons learned on their adventure? Answers to all these questions and more as we flock together with some pins of a feather in the final installment of our 12-part deep dive series. Well, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at The Tomorrow Time, or you can send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, if you have any questions, if you'd like to record us an audio message or an audio question, we'd love to hear it and we might play it on a future episode. We'd like to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we find the ones who haven't given up. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there's always a place where dreamers can stick together. together.